since today is that special day where we celebrate mothers, I did some research in order to kind of see how Mother's Day got started. And its origins started way back in the 1860s, where a woman named Anna or Ann Jarvis, who was from West Virginia, or Jerry, Jerry, West Virginia, there you go. She was a mother of 12, and what she wanted to do is she was really trying to facilitate some healing from the Civil War. And she was organizing what she called Mother's Friendship Day. And there were some calls to have like a full-fledged Mother's Day, but she died before this was ever, um, ever became a reality. And she died in 1905, but her daughter, whose name was also Anna Jarvis, she wanted to have a day to honor the memory of her mom and then additionally, all mothers. And so on May 12, 1907, there was the first informal Mother's Day where it was a small service held in honor of her mother at Saint or at Andrews Methodist Episcopal Church in Grafton, West Virginia. And then the first official service was May 10th in 1908 in Philadelphia. And the younger Anna Jarvis, she campaigned to get Mother's Day made into a national holiday and then an international holiday, which it happened in 1914. And then she went on a campaign against Mother's Day because um, Hallmark took it over, which... <laughs> is kind of wild to me, but at least that's what Wikipedia says, which we know that it is true. <laughs> the elder Anna Jarvis, she wanted to bring families together who were separated from each other during the Civil War. The younger simply wanted to honor her mom, and that's really why we still celebrate today, to honor our mothers, whether we continue to be, have them with us or maybe they've already gone home to be with the Lord. Today we're going to be looking at a little bit uh, of the first and last chapters in the book of Ruth. Historically, this little four-chapter book in the middle of the Old Testament, it's considered one of the most beautifully written pieces of literature from the ancient Near East. There's a story that goes around that, uh, that Benjamin Franklin, who was ambassador to France, or when he was ambassador to France, he would go to these meetings of a society that called themselves the Infidels Club. Sounds like a fun time. It's a pretty secular group, but they were dedicated to finding the best ideas and the finest literature and art that humanity could produce. And so what would happen is that people would bring in stories and books and works of art to present them to the group. And Franklin thought he'd have a little bit of fun with them, and he presented the book of Ruth, only he made a few alterations. What he did was he hand wrote the whole book out, the all four chapters, but he changed the names in it. And uh, when he presented the book, the people thought it was such a masterfully written piece of literature. Some thought it was the perfect short story. And that's when Franklin revealed it was the story of Ruth. And according to some accounts, I read that they were not amused. <laughs> Now, this morning, we're going to take a look at a couple of the passages, like I said, from the beginning and end, but we're going to be focusing on Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi. And before we dive into that, though, I wanted to share a list that somebody wrote that's called The Ten Best Things About Mom. These aren't in any particular order. I'm not even sure they're about this person's mom, but just moms. First one is this. Mom cares, really cares if you wipe your feet before you come in. Second one, mom went without a new winter coat for 11 years. It's not cheating if she helps you write your paper. <laughs> mom understands that you can't give up your blankie yet. 
Only a mom could get all the socks organized. Mary must have been a pretty great mom to Jesus. When you moved away, your mom will send you things like newspaper clippings about your friends uh, who stayed at home. Now, that may show the age of where, whatever this illustration is, because she probably just sent you a Facebook post now. <laughs> mom still uses whatever it was that you made in pottery class. <laughs> it's still in your house, maybe not doing the thing that it was made for, because it couldn't, but it's still there. <laughs> Mom understands that you're not ready to quit sucking your thumb yet. And mom rarely refuses to take their kids, moms rarely refuse to take their kids to the emergency room. Now, I say rarely on this, but there's a possibility, you know, that if you are at your grandfather's house, grandparents' house, and you fall down some stairs and you land on a hard tile floor and you break your arm and you're crying because it hurts a lot, and then she takes you, you know, they were like, suck it up, kid, go to sleep. That's how I remember it. <laughs> you may get something else when you go out in the foyer after service, but all I know is we did not go to the hospital until the next day. Not that that still stings, but <laughs> anyway. I like to start my sermons like this, right? Like, I like to take some time to tell a story, tell, find something funny to help get us into the text. And if it's a personal story or something funny that's happened to me, that's even better. But the problem is, today is Mother's Day, and I am not a mother, nor shall I ever be a mother. <laughs> Amen is right. <laughs> However, I was raised by a pretty amazing mother who is out in the foyer. I waved at her first service, so I don't know if I'm doing it to the right camera or not, but we'll figure it out. She waved back, too, by the way, because my mom is awesome. I also have a sister-in-law who I'm constantly impressed with. She is a great mother. I've got friends who are great moms. A lot of you in this room are amazing moms. All of the moms in this room are amazing moms. Whew. Got out of that one. But I've obviously never been a mom myself. Moms seem to have this pretty amazing ability to adjust and to deal with things that are not really going to plan, right? Like they don't get phased by a spilled drink or you know, they don't get phased by having to drop everything to take care of an injury or pull one kid off another kid or the dog. And, and it's truly amazing. But every now and then, even the most impressive mom gets a little tired. You ever noticed how when something doesn't go the way it's supposed to go, a lot of the times it's mom who deals with it? That's not true in all cases, but it's Mother's Day, so that's what we're going with. Um, but if somebody's sick, it's mom. If somebody needs a last-minute ride, it's mom. I mean, that sounds exhausting to me. But it's not just the trivial things either. It's the everyday things that mom bears the brunt of the burden with. Like, who cares for those who can't care for themselves in a lot of families? Who sacrifices their time and their energy to encourage the hopes and the dreams of a loved one? Who's most likely to trade their hopes and dreams um, for a new set of hopes and dreams when life changes? It's good for us to take a look at Naomi's story on Mother's Day because there's a whole lot going on in just a few passages of Scripture with her. 
She goes through so many different emotions, so many disappointments, but she always seems ready and willing to make a sacrifice for her family. And, and then when she does, she's usually faced with more disappointment. And it gets so discouraging that she ends up kind of a broken version of herself. And she just kind of wants to be done, done being a mom, just done going through all, all of this. And even though that's the case, we see that God wasn't done with her yet. And so let's look at what she went through. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Ruth chapter 1. And we're going to get a little bit of an understanding about Naomi and her family here with some background in verses 1 and 2. It says this, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malone and Killian. They were Ephratites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to, uh, they went to Moab and lived there. You ever notice, like, names have stories behind them. There's a lot of meaning behind names. Like, my full name, Nicholas, means people of victory. I don't know how it got to be plural, but it is. Uh, if you've ever read the Bible for any length of time, you've probably noticed the footnotes anytime a new name gets mentioned. It, it tells you the meaning of that name. For example, when God changes Abram's name to Abraham, there's a footnote down there that explains both of them. Abraham, Abram means exalted father, and Abraham is likely means father of many. His son Isaac's name means he laughs. And if you remember from when we were going through our series on Abraham, that Sarah laughed when she heard that she was going to become pregnant even in her advanced age. Isaac's son, Jacob, means he grasps at the heel. And uh, it was literally describing because he was grasping at the heel of his twin brother, Esau. Esau's name means hairy. I'll let you figure that one out on your own. <laughs> Names were very significant in that time, so we can get a pretty good understanding and insight into this family by just looking at their names. Naomi's name meant pleasantness or sweetness. Elimelech's name literally means, my God is king. Think about the kind of people they must have been. Like you got this guy who loves the Lord and wants to follow him. He recognizes that God is king in his life. And he marries this woman who is sweet and pleasant. And we know from later on in the book that they were of some means. They had some money. We know this because we're told that Elimelech owned a valuable piece of property. Now, can you imagine what they hoped and dreamed for their future? Can you put yourselves in their shoes? Like, what must have those first few years of marriage been like? How would they grow their family, their property more? Uh, imagine all they hoped to accomplish together. And then when two wonderful, beautiful people have kids, those kids typically can be wonderful and beautiful too, right? But not this time. Like we saw in the passage, they have two sons, and they named them Malone and Killian, now, Malone and Killian's name literally mean unhealthy and sickly. Why would you name your kid that? <laughs> All right, so make sure you don't name your kids Malone and Killian. Now, I'm sure Naomi had hoped and planned for sturdy, strapping young men, but instead what she got were sons who were both sick and weak. And I'm sure they planned to raise the boys around their family and in a loving, supportive community, but... Then some more bad news comes, and there's a famine in Israel, a famine in, in Bethlehem area. And so 
they decide to move. Maybe it was because of the health of the boys. Maybe it was because uh, Elimelech thought there might be better business opportunities somewhere else. But because of the famine, Elimelech moves his family, Naomi and the boys, to Moab. Now, this isn't like a move from Bloomington to Martinsville. This was a move from a place of God's choosing and blessing, the promised land of Israel, to a place where they, the Moabites, they, were, they pretty much invited God's punishment on themselves. And about 100 years after all this occurred, King David, who was Ruth's great-grandson, by the way, wrote this about Moab in Psalm 108.9. He said, Moab is my washbasin. Other translations read something like scrubbing pot. And my favorite one, which I'm not sure where it comes from, but it's called sludge bucket. I think a modern place this might be similar to would be West Lafayette. All of my Purdue people are over there. <laughs> Love you guys. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's not that bad up there. Close. Anyway, I'll let you get to your own mental picture of how God really felt about Moab. But here's Naomi. She's away from everybody she's know, she knows. She's trying to survive this famine. She's trying to take care of these two sickly children. And then another disappointment comes. And really, this is probably more than a disappointment. This is more like a tragedy because Elimelech dies. And now she's in a foreign land, and she's trying to raise these two kids on her own. The boys grow up in what might be considered a slap in the face to their mom, really an affront to her faith. They both marry Moabite women from the sludge bucket that they're living in. Another huge disappointment. And then whether it's because of the judgment for their defiance of God or because of their lifetime of being, uh, poor, being in poor health and, and that finally catching up with them, both of Naomi's sons die. Like it's just hit after hit. And she's left with nothing but these two pagan daughters-in-law named Orpah and Ruth. It's just disappointment after disappointment, and, and she's been weathering them all, but this finally reached a breaking point for her, as it would, I think. And she's done trying to continue this. She decides to go home. She's going back to Israel, going back to Bethlehem to live out the rest of her days as a poor widow. And she begged her daughters-in-law, she told them, you know, go back to your own families. You don't have to follow me anymore. Your husbands are dead. Like, just go home. And one of them did, Orpah did, but Ruth did not. But Naomi goes back home. She's a completely different person from that pleasant, sweet person she was when she left. We read about that in Ruth 1.19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the, woman ex the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So stark was this change in Naomi 
Like it was noticeable. The people who had known her from before, they barely recognized her. Think about all she'd been through. You got the famine, forcing them to travel to a foreign land, losing her husband, sons marrying Moabite women, and then losing her sons as well. That's so much for one person to take. So much. She'd been through so much that she even wanted people not to call her Naomi anymore, but to call her Mara. Naomi, which means pleasant, sweet, sweetness. Mara means bitter. And she was bitter. She was ready to give up on and live out the rest of her life that way. Any plans that she ever had never seemed to work out. It always seemed to go wrong. But God wasn't done with her. While none of her plans worked out, God was, his plan was just getting started. Now, you may feel like none of your plans have worked out and that your life hasn't turned out to be anything like you were hoping or expecting it to be. But that doesn't mean that God's not working. Even while Naomi felt like God had forgotten about and abandoned her, he was laying the groundwork for what would be a fairly incredible plan. This plan would eventually bless Naomi It would bless her nation, the nation of Israel, and it's going to bless the whole world. And she, it was all through her disappointment. Ruth, one of the Moabite women who had married one of Naomi's sons, she was so determined to be with Naomi when she traveled back home. This is what she said in Ruth 1.16. said, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. After returning to Bethlehem, Ruth goes out to glean um, to try and find what little food she could for both her and Naomi. And while out gleaning, she meets this man named Boaz, who's a relative of Elimelech's. And he took on the role of what's called a kinsman redeemer. Some translations like the NIV call it guardian redeemer. And this is a legal term for somebody who has the obligation to redeem a relative who's in serious difficulty. And Boaz would eventually marry Ruth, and then he would buy all of Elimelech's land from Naomi. And you can see God wonderfully orchestrated all of these things, everything that needed to come together in order to bring together Ruth and Boaz. But look at what he did for Naomi. We move to chapter 4, verse 14. The women said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May may he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Just three chapters earlier in this story, all that she felt was disappointed, empty, bitter. And now she's full and full of life and hope. She had become bitter, but now her sweetness had returned to her again. 
Psalm 34, 15 reads this, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to blot out their name from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. I know there are times where our hopes and our dreams get crushed. We get disappointed because life's turning out different from what we were expecting it to be. But that doesn't mean that God's not working because you and I are special to God. See, God sees that tiny detail of what what you're worrying about. He knows the pain that you feel. He knows the thing that you've given up on. That may be the thing that he's working on. Naomi would never have suspected what God had in store for her. She thought her story was over, but in reality, this is chapter one. Don't let disappointment make you bitter. Don't let life's circumstances steal your sweetness because God is not done with your story yet. As we close out today, I can't help but notice that there's something in this story that's not actually you know, explicitly written out in the text, but you can see it. What we can see is that Naomi experienced most of her heartbreak and her disappointment when she was in Moab. She left Moab feeling empty and bitter. But once she got back home, once she got back where she was supposed to be among God's people, she started to experience the fullness and the sweetness that she had wanted and desired for so long. It reminds me of one of my favorite passages, and a lot of times it's one that we could use on Father's Day. But this passage, though, it's a parable that Jesus told, and it's of a young man who had wandered far away from his home, disgracing his father's name, basically telling his father that he wanted him to die. And while he was away, he blew his money on everything, and he was just in the dumps, and and he needed to go back home. He decided to go back home. Came to his senses, the Bible says, And he was still a long way off. His father was looking for him. And his father ran to him. Is it time for you to come home this morning? You tired of living in the sludge? Well, then come home. Come home to God's people. Because that's where healing starts. That's where the bitterness can become sweetness and emptiness can become fullness. Would you pray with me as we close out? Heavenly Father, Lord, that is our prayer that that if we are far from you, Lord, that we would come home. Come home to your people, come home to your church because here we we can come alongside each other, we can build each other up. We can love each other and take care of each other just like Boaz did with Ruth and Naomi. We do this because you've told us that we should love one another. We love one another just like you loved us. And so, Father, we just, uh, we take the time to remember Naomi's story, not because everything went perfect, because as you can see, it, it did not. But we take the time because it could be any one of us. And it is still just a wonderful reminder that 
No matter how bad things get, no matter how dark the world seems, how empty, how bitter, you are still on your throne. You are still here. You're still writing the story, and it does not end here. Lord, we just thank you. We thank you that you continue to write that story for us. We thank you for Jesus, that his story didn't end on the cross. That's just the start, really. Help us to be like him. Help us to come home to you. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.